Talk Recorded live. Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, March 4th, 2011. Today is episode 199. It's coming to you today from Studio C in McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania, where the sun is shining, and it's really a lovely spring day here. My name is Cliff Slotnicker, the Z-Man. Radio Joe Hughes is participating today remotely from the IAQ Training Institute offices in Central City, PA. And at the controls is our engineer, Austin Stone Cold Novak. Today's segments include the IAQ radio trivia question, an interview with Mr. Scott Rosenzweig with Microban International, some comments from Joe at halftime, and the roundup. We've been updating and we add a blog to the IAQ Radio website every week after the show. Check it out at www.iaqradio.com. First, we'd like to thank our marquee sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. To contact the show by phone, call 724-444-7444 and enter our show ID, which is 1547. You can also listen live or download the show by going to our website, www.iaqradio.com, and following the link that says go to the show. And the show is archived and available from iTunes. Don't forget, you can get your American Board of Industrial Hygiene Certification Maintenance Points, IICRC Continuing Education Credits, or American Council for Academic Certification Renewal Credits by emailing Radio Joe and requesting the quizzes. Radio Joe's email address is joe.use at iaqtraining.com. Our email addresses are also on the homepage of the iaqradio.com website. Last but not least, please visit IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. 
win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IEQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IEQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, just text it in via your computer. Congratulations. To Trivia Master John Lapotere, MicroShield Environmental Services, Winter Springs, Florida, for yet again being the first person to answer last week's trivia question, correctly identifying grain as the unit of measurement of mass based upon a, a mass of a single seed of a cereal and common to the three traditional English mass and weight systems. The IEQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, March 4th, 2011 has been sponsored by Cochrane & Associates, the indoor air quality industry's dedicated marketing and public relations firm. Now for this week's trivia question. Unless an exemption applies, all pesticides must be registered with the EPA. Any product that bears a pesticide claim also must be registered unless an exemption applies. One such exemption applies to products that have been treated with a pesticide for protection. Name this exception. Our guest today is Scott Rosenswey. He is Senior Vice President, Business Development at Microban International Incorporated. Scott's background is in the entertainment and brand licensing industry. Prior to coming to Microband, he worked with Nickelodeon to license characters from their TV shows to manufacturers in categories as diverse as toys, apparel, sporting goods, books, and video games. Scott also oversaw a team of licensing professionals at the Beanstalk Group, a New York City-based brand licensing agency that were charged with helping its Fortune 500 clients, including... Harley-Davidson, Ford Motor Company, Stanley Toolworks, license their brands to manufacturers in categories ranging all the way from die-cast replicas and ride-on toys to bedding and room decor to electric hand tools. In late 2005, Scott joined Microband to help the company extend both its ingredient brand and its unique antimicrobial technology into new product categories. And in that time, the company has added over 75 new partners and renewed nearly 95% of existing partners whose contract term has come to an end. At Microban International, he and his team are responsible for identifying and soliciting new prospective partners for the company, negotiating license and supply agreements with them, and then managing the ongoing business relationship with those partners for the life of the partnership. Scott and his colleagues focus on prospects in relevant categories within several key business verticals, consumer products, building products, textiles, and commercial applications, primarily food service, healthcare, and hospitality. Scott and his team are the primary contacts for all of Microband's U.S. partners and facilitate their interactions with the various disciplines within the company, including research and development, marketing, operations, finance, and legal. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining, Scott. You can't always see them, but they're there, growing and multiplying on the everyday products you come in contact with, at home, at work, and at play. Microbes, such as bacteria, mold, and mildew. And on an unprotected product, they can double in number every 20 minutes, causing stains, odors, and product deterioration. But there is a way to fight what you can't see. Microban is the global leader in built-in antimicrobial technology and can be found in over 750 products of leading manufacturers around the world, including Whirlpool, Rubbermaid, DuPont, Kimberly-Clark, Silestone, Conair, and many more. 
Thanks for joining us, Scott. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, guys. Okay. Hello, Scott. Good. Can you tell us a little bit about how the company got started, Scott? Sure. Uh, A gentleman named W.L. Morrison uh, was kind of hanging around in his house one day and returning a call to a doctor uh, who was helping to design a system for uh, disposable medical products and trying to keep those products cleaner and fresher longer. Uh, and, and Mr. Morrison had the idea that, uh, you know, he could incorporate an antimicrobial into some of these products to keep them that way. But then also, as he held the phone receiver in his hand, had the idea, well, why couldn't I do this in consumer products like a telephone or, you know, any other type of consumer product you can think of where adding an antimicrobial benefit might help keep that product cleaner, fresher, longer. And, uh, and an idea was born, and a company was born. What is the... Thought, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Joe. I just I thought I'd jump in. First, I want to say thanks for, for joining us. I know you're a busy man. We appreciate you joining us. Um, we, uh, I, I teach some courses, and when, when I do, we discuss the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, FIFRA. Right. And um, during that discussion, we will oftentimes mention a treated article exemption. And, and quite frankly, I'm not sure if that's actually a part of FIFRA or it's it's a separate uh, legislation of some type. But I'm sure Cliff if, could let us know if, if you don't know. But could you tell our listeners what the treated article exemption is? Sure. I do believe it is part of FIFRA. And the treated article exemption really spells out for companies like mine and my partners um, what types of claims can be made if they want to incorporate an antimicrobial into the final product but don't want to register it as a pesticide product? Excuse me, my dog is barking. Um, so for us, the, the way that we would work is um, we would provide the manufacturer with the antimicrobial, um, and instead of them submitting the product for testing to EPA, which would be a very expensive and time-consuming process. Um, We instead make some claims that are not necessarily health-related, either expressed or implied. So instead of saying, uh, you know, this product is treated with microban and antimicrobial, uh, we would never say, for instance, that it will keep you healthier, uh, it will protect the user, it will keep you from getting sick, or it kills a certain amount of bacteria, that's not where we would go. Uh, Where we would go is we would say that the product inhibits the growth of bacteria, mold and mildew, that cause stains and odors on the product itself. And so the treated articles exemption is designed to make sure that people understand that these products are being treated to, to protect the surface of the product itself and not to extend that claim to human health. Uh, and, and in doing that, the manufacturer, my partner, uh, avoids having to go through the expense and the time of submitting its products to EPA for a long registration and testing process. Does the Food and Drug Administration have a parallel exemption? Food and Drug Administration doesn't really reach into our world very often. Uh, there are similar exemptions, um, but typically when we're talking about surface items uh, or items that are treated on their surface, EPA will have uh, the, the jurisdiction. Even the medical stuff? 
when it comes to medical devices specifically, uh, FDA will control. And in that case, what happens is we actually will work with our partners to incorporate our antimicrobials into their medical device. Uh, we will provide them with information that demonstrates that the product uh, is safe for use inside the human body. And then FDA uh, will approve what they call a 510K approval, uh, which basically means that the device maker has to submit the device to FDA, uh, inclusive of the antimicrobial benefit, uh, and then have that all tested. And there are a battery of tests that FDA lays out, both for the antimicrobial efficacy and for the, uh, the instrument itself, before it will receive that approval. Once it receives that approval, uh, there are certain claims that are, frankly, far, uh, far more definitive that can be made on a medical device than, than what could be made on a, a product that's, that's under the treated articles exemption. So, for instance, you could make a claim that says, uh, you know, this, this device will kill 99.9% .9 of MRSA or some other um, uh, bacteria, mold, uh, or fungus. Scott, let me let me get a clarification from you, if you would. Um, you're talking about a medical device. I just want to make sure that, that myself and the listeners are on the same page with you. Mm -hmm. are, are we talking about, like, a, a hip replacement, the, the actual replacement part, or a pacemaker, or is it maybe the the instruments that the the physician uses while he's doing the work, or both? Uh, actually, you know, there's there's different degrees. What I'm really referring to is less implantable, but let's say a uh, a pacemaker. Think about a catheter, something that's in for a period of days. Um, those are protected today with antimicrobials, uh, but they're not in the patient's body for more than let's call it seven days or or between seven and 30 days. And there are, there are defined intervals at which FDA will make certain rulings. So typically, any work that we'll be doing in the de medical device category will be in materials that are within the patient's body for between seven and 30 days, not longer. All right. Thank you for the clarification. I, I would imagine you do a lot of engineering and um, that microband hires and, and uses a lot of engineers uh, during the product development. Can you tell us a little bit about the role of engineering in product development at microband? Absolutely. The engineers at microband are the rock stars. I'm just the teeth and hair. <laughs> <laughs> the, the guys at, at microband are experts at incorporating an antimicrobial into various substrates. So think about polymers, textiles, coatings. Uh, if you think about almost any substrate that a product can be made of, maybe except for glass and, uh, and wood itself, we can treat wood coatings. Um, we can pretty much incorporate nanomicrobial into any substrate. And so we have people on staff who are expert polymer engineers and understand how to incorporate various antimicrobial actives along with carriers uh, into polypropylene, polyethylene, uh, you name the different type of plastic. Uh, we have others who are uh, more uh, expert in textile formulations. And so they engineer these formulations so that they can be incorporated either onto the surface of fabric via padding, or they can be incorporated into the fibers via exhaustion uh, and deliver the same antimicrobial benefit that we get when we put something into a plastic. 
Uh, same for paint and coatings, literally putting an antimicrobial into a thin coating that will, so long as that coating stays on top of the surface, provide an antimicrobial benefit. And all of these are, you know, typically they have a lot of chemistry background um, and the engineers themselves are experts in their, in their given fields. So uh, we have a gentleman named Dr. Ivan Ong, who's our VP of, of R&D, and he is the foremost expert in, in, in applying antimicrobials into any kind of polymer you can think of. Uh, and we try to bring that level of expertise into every substrate that we go into business with. How do you, how do you go about confirming um, that the additive actually does what you want it to do? What we'll do is we'll submit or we'll actually uh, have our customers run some trials, incorporate our ingredients into their products uh, during what we would call a, a production trial. And we would have them submit that to Microban, uh, both in the treated part, and then we would ask them to treat or send us a control part that hasn't been treated. Uh, Microban uh, has laboratories in-house in our headquarters in Huntersville, uh, microbiological laboratories that use standard test methods to test for antimicrobial efficacy. So there's really two ways to look at that. Um, one is very visual, and we call those qualitative methods, where we'll take a treated versus an untreated sample, put them into basically a, a Petri dish, um, load them up with bacteria, inoculate them, and then let them sit over a period of time, usually 24 hours, and look at the difference between the treated and the untreated part, usually cut up and put into this agar or broth in the in the in the um, in the petri dish, and you will see a visible difference between what has been treated with an antimicrobial versus what hasn't. Um, that part will look cleaner; uh, it'll look pristine, where the other part itself will look very mottled. Um, it could look yellowish, dirty, uh, all the way up to you know black and darkened. Um, when, uh, when you're talking about quantitative methods, it's more, these are methods where you can't really see the change, but you can actually count the reduction in bacteria. So you take the same treated and untreated part, put them in the same Petri dish, hit them with the exact same amount of bacteria, let it sit for 24 hours, and then count the remaining bacteria. And uh, what you'll find is with an antimicrobial-treated part, there's been a significant reduction in the number of bacteria on that part compared to the part that wasn't treated, where the bacteria will continue to grow and reproduce, usually at a rate of, you know, two times every two hours or something like that. How does the addition of this microban additive protect a finished product? Well, what happens is the, the, the microband goes into the product during the manufacturing process. So it's not typically kind of an afterthought. It's not a spray on. It's actually going in while the product's being made. So if you're injection molding a piece of plastic, you'll put microband, our, anti, our antimicrobial additive, along with a resin carrier, so call it a polypropylene or polyethylene, along with the with 99%, let's call it, of the base resin, which might be that same polyethylene or polypropylene. So by weight, we'll go in at 1%, just to keep it simple, 
um, and we go through the entire matrix of that plastic. So let's let's use a toilet seat for example. If the toilet seat is a half an inch thick, you know, there's going to be microband at about one percent of weight throughout the entire toilet seat from top to bottom, and that's what makes the product protected uh, for the life of the product. In cases where we're in a coating, I think I mentioned it earlier, you know, we'll be there as long as that coating is on the surface. So if I went into a paint or if I went into uh, uh, even a metal plating, we would be there for the period of time where that plating or that coating remained on the surface. If it gets worn off or washed away or due to friction or for whatever reason it flakes off, microband is no longer there. But in products where we're actually embedded into the entire matrix, we should be able to give our customers a lifetime durability claim. Joe? Okay. Yes, Glenn. I have a text question here. I actually texted it in because I'm curious myself. Sure. Um, how big of a how big of a company is Microband? It sounds like you're huge. <laughs> I can't tell you exactly how big we are. Um, I think that you know what I will say is this: is that compared to our competition in terms of other companies who claim to be in the antimicrobial space and utilize brands, uh, we are by far the largest. Uh, our brand is by far the most well known. We employ over 50 people uh, whose sole responsibility every day is to help us figure out how to get antimicrobials into various products. And we work with the best companies in the world, companies like Whirlpool, Rubbermaid, um, Bissell, and these are U.S. companies. We work with companies uh, across the world like Cosentino, uh, who makes the Silestone countertops that you may see at Home Depot or in um, various countertop um, facilities. Uh, we work with uh, the finest companies around. So, so I would say, I can't give you the exact figure, but I would say that when it comes to built-in antimicrobial protection, uh, we are by far the largest in the game. You know, it, it sounds like that it would obviously cost these people a little bit more to build in this antimicrobial protection in their products. And I'm just curious, do you get a lot of resistance with respect to the additional costs? Um, and when you do, how do you tell them, well, yeah, there may be some additional costs if there are, but you also get these benefits, and how do you kind of get them to, um, you know, the bean counters to actually calculate <laughs> what kind of, uh, what kind of uh, benefits they're going to get for their money? That's a really good question. I mean, I think in today's environment, especially if you think about consumer products, the fact that we have such a consolidated retail environment uh, puts a lot of pricing pressure on our customers. So very often it's difficult for them to say to the retailer, forget the consumer for a second, but to the retailer, hey, retailer, I'm going to add this feature and benefit that you can't see, smell, or touch, and I'm going to ask you to pay more for it. Yeah. Um, and that is, that's a challenge, and we don't try and sugarcoat that with our customers. But what we do tell them is that there is a real benefit there, that we're improving the product, that we can help them demonstrate that at the point of purchase, which we do very often using graphics and other things. Uh, and what our customers typically will partner with us for is not necessarily to take more price. Sometimes they will. I mean, that's, a, that's an added benefit. But a lot of times it's to help them add innovation into their products that their competitors won't have. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of having the microband brand is, is that it's a very 
it's a well-known brand in our space, um, and that's great. I mean, we have 42% aided brand awareness um, in in antimicrobials, and you know, look, we're we're a big fish in a small pond, but to give some kind of you know, what does that mean in terms of brand awareness? When we measure ingredient brands, you're thinking of folks like Intel, uh, you know, Intel Inside, or you're thinking about uh, NutraSweet, or you're thinking about um, Teflon. And all of those brands have some level of brand awareness, um, probably close to 50% and over. Um, when you get to up to like a NutraSweet, there's probably close to 90% brand awareness. When you come to Microband, we're up in the high 40s, which on an aided brand awareness basis is really, really special if you think about it because, you know, we're a fairly young company. Our brand isn't everywhere. We work with big brands, so it can be, our brand can be overshadowed sometimes. But the fact that we can be in so many different products across the retail environment and across the commercial environment uh, gives us a lot of brand awareness. And so that's the key difference, uh, you know, when you're working with us and when our customers go and speak to their customers, whether it's a retailer or a, 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 a guy who owns a, a bunch of restaurants, you know, they'll say that we're protecting our product with the best brand of antimicrobial there is, and you can trust that it's safe and effective and durable. Scott, you know, you, you said that you have this 42% brand awareness, and to me that's a number um, can you give me a brand that's kind of in the same range as as you? Like you know, like for sure. instance. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. But uh, there's a there's a couple of brands I would say that are pretty close. Think about Lycra. Okay. Uh, everybody's kind of familiar with Lycra when you want to wear some kind of spandex or a stretchy fabric. The thing with ingredient brands is it's not often that people will recognize them without being told the name. So when we say unaided versus aided awareness, you know, unaided awareness would be, you would ask the person, hey, what's your favorite stretchy brand of fabric? I think very few people would say Lycra. I mean, they may, they may get to it eventually, but if you said, you know, are you familiar with Lycra, Spandex, or one of these others, a good amount of those would say, oh, Lycra, I've heard of that one. And Lycra's, I think, brand awareness is probably on that basis, on an aided basis, is, is probably closer to 50%, okay. uh, where microbands is around 42. You would take Teflon, which might be the same idea, and that's going to have an even higher brand awareness. Um, but again, on an aided basis, because when you ask the question, what's your favorite nonstick chemical, you know, people are kind of like, what are you talking about? But when you ask them, hey, you know, have you ever heard of these nonstick chemicals, Teflon or something else, you know, immediately they're going to glom onto the Teflon. Gotcha. And it's tough to even think of something else, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> what, what else is there? Yeah, yeah, excellent, Scott. Great, great interview, great, uh, great discussion of that issue. I, I wanted to ask that question. You kind of anticipated it. Um, I know we want to talk about what types of antimicrobial active ingredients you use uh, or utilize within the products. We're getting close to halftime. Cliff, do you want to just start on the answer on that and then finish it after halftime? Well, no, I think what I was going to do is I'll ask one question that's probably going to be a short answer, and then, you know, we'll kind of go into halftime. And, Scott, just hang in, and, you know, we, we do a little commercial break, and Joe's got a couple of announcements, and then we're going to be back. But I've got a question that probably won't take you a long time. Uh, sure. Is microban simply a preservative? 
No, I'm glad you asked that. Actually, no, we're not a preservative. Um, what we are is we're an active ingredient that actually performs on the surface of the product itself. So when you say preservative, if you think about paints uh, and, and even in food, right, the preservative is to keep that, that food fresh or that paint fresh until it's actually opened and used. But the idea is not to perform some benefit or, or deliver a benefit once the paint's been applied. Uh, in a preservative instance, but if you put microban in a paint in a can of paint, not only will the can of paint be preserved when you ship it, and that's the main point, but when you apply it to the wall or apply it to the outside of the house, there will actually be an active surface that will inhibit the growth of bacteria or mold or mildew for a period of time, and um, and that's the difference between us and 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 what you would call. Um, Sorry, I just yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. All right, well, thank you. I think I, I'm, I learned a lot with that answer. Let's stop for halftime. You got it. All right, our association sponsors are the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. NADCA.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at IAQA.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental and consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. And, of course, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfactswithanx.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Joe, you've got a couple of news items for the listeners. Yeah, we had two new documents that came out just this week, Cliff, and they're they're both, I think, important documents that we've had previous shows about, and I wanted to alert listeners they're available now. First one is the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine released their revised uh, what they call a position statement on adverse human health effects associated with molds in the indoor environment. We've had uh, several people want to discuss the previous version of this document. They came out with a revised version. If you recall, this was actually the uh, subject of a Wall Street Journal front page article a few years back, and there was some concern that there was some bias uh, in the previous statement that had been used to downplay the potential health effects for people who had been exposed in indoor environments. Um, I sent a link with that 
for that with today's invitation. It's a document that I think anyone involved in the indoor air quality industry should get a copy of. It's also a free download, so you can either email me and I'll send you the link again or check closely on the right-hand side of today's show announcements and you'll find that one. The second one is one that we discussed with Lisa Rogers. It's the standard guide for the assessment of fungal growth in buildings. It has been released by the American Society for Testing Materials, so it's an ASTM standard. And uh, in my opinion and in the opinion of some of the other people I've talked to who I value their opinions a great deal, this will probably become the state of the art on assessment of fungal growth in buildings, and it has been a long time in coming. We hope to do a follow-up show with Lisa and or some of the other members of that ASTM D7338-10 committee. Uh, it was excellent, excellent show. We had actually the D22 committee. They have uh, several subcommittees. The document is not very long. It's $39. You have to order it through the American Society for Testing Materials, ASTM. But uh, I do believe it will become an important document as we go through the next few years here and actually probably for the next decade. And just a quick side note, there is one very brief passage on air or surface fungal sampling. It is not a key component of the fungal assessment as a part of the ASTM guide anyway, although it is mentioned that uh, you may want to do some air or surface sampling. If it's performed at all, however, it should be planned to test a specific hypothesis. And, uh, again, we'll talk more about that one on a future show. Thanks, Cliff. Okay. Scott, um, let's let's get back to our interview. Um, what sort of antimicrobial active ingredients does MBI utilize? Uh, typically, we're using uh, materials including zinc, silver, uh, triclosan, uh, a variety of antifungal products. Um, I would say that those are the, the three that I mentioned earlier are probably the big three that most of our customers are using in their everyday products. When you use, oh, that was, yeah, yeah, I, I guess when you use those, do you use them in combination with one another? Or do you use them uh, singling? Or, you know, do you use them one, one at a time or the answer right. is both? Uh, no, actually, typically we use them singly. Uh, I think that probably has a lot to do with cost. Um, and so we, we, we tend to use one or the other active. Each of them has different benefits. So uh, a zinc, for instance, has really good antibacterial and antifungal uh, performance, uh, depending on, of course, the concentration. Uh, silver uh, has a really nice profile for antibacterial performance. Um, and then triclosan also has good antibacterial performance. It's an, it's an organic, uh, and it actually has a good antifungal performance, too, at high enough concentrations. So we really look at a variety of different uh, parameters when we decide what antimicrobial we should use, and that's the parameters are typically everything from what kind of performance are we looking for, what kind of cost is our customer able to bear, uh, and then finally, every now and then, you've got to ask yourself, what are the, you know, the public relations implications? And so sometimes we'll steer people from one to another, depending on the category of product that they're in. Scott, I'm curious. Uh, you, you didn't mention copper. Uh, 
and I, I just wanted to alert listeners that there was a, a recent announcement. If you get, if you're a member of the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers, they have a, a weekly email that goes out there, eIndustry at ashray.org. And this week it had an article on the U.S. military testing AC units made with copper. And I find that to be an interesting, uh, and it's specifically because they want to make sure that, you know, obviously bacteria, mold, mildew, et cetera, don't grow on there. Have you experimented with copper at all? Are you looking at that, or can't we talk about that maybe? We, or we can talk about it. Uh, we, we have chosen not to focus too much on copper. Um, I'm really not – I don't think I have a really good answer for why that is. Um, suffice to say that I think when we look at our various antimicrobials, we're looking for the broadest range of performance. And my guess, again, because I'm not on the technical side of the business, would be is that we don't see that kind of performance with copper that we see with some of the others. Okay. I, I get, I get, I could venture a guess. I'm not sure if I'm right or not, but you know, one of the inherent things that comes with copper is the color, and, true, and that may not be um, acceptable to you know someone that is making a, a white product. You know, in order to add copper, you might have to make it a little bit greenish or a little bit blue. You know, so that that might be it. And cost is too. It's a pretty pricey, although so is silver, but. Okay, uh, let's talk a little bit about triclosan because um, I think that it's a uh, you know I think it's a controversial. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know whether it really is a controversial ingredient or not. I know that uh, the Europeans uh, ha- seem to have a heightened awareness. What can you tell me about triclosan? Well, uh, what I can tell you about triclosan is that it's a product that's been used in everything from toothpaste to hand soap. For over 30 years, uh, it's been approved by both the FDA and the EPA uh, for a variety of uses. It's gone through extensive testing um, on both, I guess, humans and the environment uh, with regard to safety. And I believe, you know, that there's never been really any documented evidence that that triclosan is anything but safe for both humans and in the environment, or certainly not detrimental to the environment itself, um, but there is there is a a, a a negative feeling I think for triclosan uh, that's out there. Um, I think the uh, the NGOs in particular have have uh, have targeted triclosan as a product that that might not be as safe as we think it is, and so we. At Microband, use the product. We have had our customers in the product for a long time. Um, EPA, like I said, regards it as safe and approves it as safe for the uses that it's intended. And uh, we feel good about the, the, the product itself and what it does. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that sometimes public opinion is important when it comes to putting a product out on the shelves. And so if our customers are uncomfortable with something that might be a little bit of a lightning rod, we have so many other opportunities and so many different alternatives that there's no question that we're going to find them an alternative that will work, will be cost competitive, and will deliver equivalent performance uh, without necessarily having to worry about public sentiment. But from our perspective, you know, triclosan is, is safe and effective and useful and, uh, you know, just to give you kind of a sense of things, 
you, there's more triclosan in, in, Colgate, in a tube of Colgate toothpaste, total toothpaste, than what we will put into a Rubbermaid sink mat. There's three times more concentration. So it must be safe if the FDA is allowing uh, Colgate to use the product in toothpaste uh, at higher levels than what we're putting it in to protect a sink mat, you know, that will end up in your sink and then ultimately in the garbage can uh, when, it's, when it's lived its useful life. So, you know, we feel pretty confident that we're, we're using a safe product. Scott, before we go on, you, you used a term that I'm not familiar with, you know, maybe Joe is, NGO. What is that? Uh, non-governmental organizations, and typically these are organizations that, um, you know, they're, they're interested in protecting the environment, uh, interested in protecting certain groups of society. Uh, you know, they have, I think, typically very good goals and objectives for protecting their constituencies. Uh, and sometimes, unfortunately, they have, from what I've seen, and I'm not a political guy, but from what I've seen, they have a, uh, they have a history of using junk science uh, to get their way or to at least make their message known. And it's not really a fair, uh, I guess, a fair look at what the product does and what, whether the product is safe or not. And so, you know, I think the NGOs have good intentions for the most part, um, but sometimes the tactics are a little bit questionable. Okay, cool. Can I follow up, Cliff, real sure, quick? Sure, go ahead, John. Just on, on, the, on the statement, I, I just want to make sure I understand this right. On the um, FDA in particular and, and EPA, do they approve or register the products, Scott? Does FDA approve products or do they register like EPA does? And if EPA does approve something, let me know. I mean, I, I, I'm trying to be real careful on that language because I get nailed by it from time to time with people. <laughs> right. And, and I'll be honest with you, I'm not a regulatory expert either. Okay. But my, but, you know, my understanding is that when you register an active with the EPA, you're registering that active, and they're doing tests to make sure that it's going to be safe for health and the environment, for human health and the environment. Uh, and I would say probably it's the same thing with FDA. Uh, of course, I do believe that both of them are either registering specific products as well as active ingredients. And so, again, my lack of regulatory expertise tells me to probably be quiet. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, I just want to make that. sure we, we, you know, because I, I kind of emphasize that in, in my classes, and I just want to make sure that those that are listening, a lot of them are in my classes, uh, recognize that, you know, I know in FIFRA they register products, and Cliff, you know better than any, you know, I'm sure you could straighten me out on this real quick. Well, what happens is one of the things that, and Scott can correct me if, if I get off track, but one of the things that, is required under the treated article exemption is that the product used to protect the article or the item needs to be an EPA registered antimicrobial. I mean that's that's the, that, that's, that's half the equation uh, right there. So you can't just add anything. You, you need to use an additive that's registered uh, with the agency. And then, as Scott said before, you know there's certain certain claims that you're allowed to make and certain claims that you're not allowed to make and, you know, certain wording and language and stuff like that. So, 
I don't know whether that helped you or not, Joe. It did, absolutely. Well, uh, let me, uh, how does the U.S. government regulatory environment for antimicrobial products compared to other countries in the world? I'm, I'm curious. I know you're worldwide. I mean, how many countries, are you, off the top of your head, I don't know if you know, how many countries do you sell products in and or assist um, others who sell products in? And um, what types of issues do you come up against with respect to the United States government versus others? Uh, I would say we sell, first of all, into at least 75 countries or more around the world. Uh, we have uh, dedicated offices here in the U.S., obviously, uh, in Europe uh, and in Asia. Uh, and in Europe, we're based in our base is, is in Kanak in the U.K., and then in Asia, we have uh, an office in Hong Kong and in Shenzhen in China. Um, you know, I would say from a regulatory perspective that both the U.S. and Europe are probably the most regulatory or most active in terms of regulatory enforcement and in terms of regulatory um, guidance and guidelines. I think once you end up in the Pacific Rim or in Asia, there's a lot less regulation. And so there are claims that can be made in those areas that we would never try and make here and certainly wouldn't make in Europe either although you'd be surprised i think europe is a is a greener environment uh so to speak than than would be in the in in the u.s uh but their claims are actually a little bit less restrictive so it's just kind of odd you know how that works in the various regions of the world all right cliff what type of organisms um are most difficult for you to control scott that's a good question. I should have a scientist with me. Uh, the, uh, I think the truth is biofilms are probably the most difficult things for us to treat given the type of antimicrobials that we use and the fact that we're not a surface treatment, but we are, when I say surface treatment, not a disinfecting spray, something that you put on, on the surface itself so that we're working you know, kind of within the product instead of without the product. So I think where there's biofilm formation or an area where a product could get dirty or gunky, it's hard for our product to kind of penetrate uh, beyond that. So as you get a biofilm formation, you're getting layers and layers of this goo, frankly, that the bacteria then can grow on top of. And so I would say that that's probably our biggest, uh, our hardest foe when it comes to an antimicrobial, built-in antimicrobial treatment would be biofilms. And a biofilm is, is I guess, a uh, conglomeration of a bunch of different um, bacteria and maybe other microorganisms? And soil. Yeah, I think so, and, and I think waste and, and soil. soil and some other stuff, too, where they just kind of, it, it provides almost a feeding ground and a home for bacteria to just grow and grow and grow on top of. And I would assume that's a, especially a, a big concern in any of your medical uh, equipment uh, applications. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're just now entering into the medical device arena, uh, and, and we're learning a lot as we go. And biofilm is clearly the big issue uh, that we're working on and learning more about in terms of our products being efficacious in a medical device environment. Um, Scott, do your additives actually kill microorganisms? 
I could tell you that, but then I'd have to kill you. Okay. No. <laughs> the, the answer is, is yeah, yeah, if we're being practical, if we're being practical and I'm not making a specific claim or inducing you to buy or sell right. anything, right. the answer is yes, our product does kill bacteria. Okay. Um, and you can see that when we, you know, when we do testing, uh, we can provide you with, or we can provide our customers with test results that demonstrate uh, that we are killing bacteria or mold or mildew. Um, of course, we can't make those claims when we're trying to sell to our customers or sell to the consumer at large. And so I am cautious when I talk about it because it's important that we stay within the EPA guidelines that are laid out. Um, but, you know, in, in practical speaking terms, yes, the answer is, is that our products are effective against these bacteria, and that's why we're able to make the claims that we're able to make. Does, does the protection that your products build into these, uh, well, that your product builds into other products, how long does it last? Does it wear off or does it wear out? Uh, you know, we, we kind of hit on that a little bit earlier. When you're, when you're talking about plastics, uh, where we'll go through an entire matrix, so the entire width of a toilet seat we mentioned or a sink mat or something like that, uh, our durability is usually the lifetime of the product, the usable lifetime of the product. Now, there will be instances, so for instance, uh, in a dishwasher, where you've got high heat, high friction, high water content, and we're beating up that surface constantly, uh, where we might find that our durability is lessened. Uh, and it really, frankly, also depends on the active that you use. So whether it's a silver or a triclosan or a zinc, durability sometimes depends on which of those actives you're using. But I would say from a durability perspective, so long as the material that we've treated is still viable, whether it's a plastic or a coating or even in a textile, um, we will be able to pr provide protection. Textiles is actually an interesting case because people launder them. And so, you know, I think our sweet spot for durability in textiles is usually 25 home launderings uh, before the product starts to degrade in, in terms of its antimicrobial efficacy. So in the textile area, because it does go through such a strenuous laundering process, uh, we don't have the same kind of durability that we might find in a plastic product that's being cleaned only, you know, only a little bit or every now and then. I, I guess uh, as a follow-up question to this wearing out or wearing off, I, I guess your product doesn't leach out, correct? It, it, it stays where you put it. Right. I mean, uh, you know, the, leaching out is one of those phrases that gets everybody a little bit nervous. Um, you know, our product is built into the surface, and there are certain products that you would say uh, work at equilibrium. So, Let's say that uh, I'm using a product and I put it throughout the entire matrix of the plastic and the antimicrobial typically works at the surface and it's, you know, helping to penetrate the cell wall of an organism. You know, some of that is being used up at the surface. Certain antimicrobials will self-level. In other words, they'll move to the surface to replace what's been used. Um, that's not leaching. That's just kind of an equilibrium. Uh, if you're talking about a product that doesn't have a kind of a, I guess, a, a more of a, a motion within it, uh, like a silver or more of the organics, you know, once those ions, which is the way the silvers work, uh, are used up, that surface starts to become less antimicrobial over time. But remember, you're putting so much 
material there that, you know, calling it or, or the durability that's there is going to last a very long time, far longer than the typical use life of a, of a product if it's not getting washed or put in severe heat or other severe conditions. The reason I, I, I used asked the question and, and kind of used the terminology was you said that biofilms are probably the most troubling um, challenge that you have. And I was just making this assumption the reason that you had trouble with a biofilm would be that you work at this interface where the first level of soil is. That's what the only thing that really comes into your product is that. And then you're not you know, you're not losing anything of your treatment that, you know, can come out and then work its way up through the biofilm. So that's, that's really actually a good, a good way to think about it. Right. We're, we're effective at that surface, but our stuff is not going to climb out through that bio junk and to the surface of what, so, so no, right. We'll, we'll be effective on the surface of the product itself, but we won't be able to our stuff won't climb out to the top of the biofilm formation and, and, and defeat it from the top. I suspect that that's probably how you got some of these agencies to go along with it because, um, you know, it's not leaching out into the environment. It's going to stay in the material where it's at. That sounds about right. I wasn't involved at all in convincing the agency. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave that to others. Right. Well, hey, Scott, I got a quick one. I know we've got to go to Roundup, but I think this should be fairly quick. Um, what type of building products? You've mentioned like toilet seats and, and a few other. I don't know that they're I don't know if that's necessarily what Cliff meant when he wrote this question. I like it though. But what type of what other types of building products or materials is Microband currently being used in? That's that's a really good question. Um, you know, we're used in products. Uh, I think that you would find probably obvious, right? Like grouts and caulks, where black mold can become a problem. Uh, so we work with uh, great partners like DAP and Laticrete. And we provide them with an antimicrobial that keeps that grout in between tiles or that caulk um, in a bathtub uh, that's, that's sealing the, the surface. We, uh, we help keep it nice, white, and pristine. So there's an obvious benefit there. So in certain mastics, I guess you would say, we, we have a big place. Uh, in terms of other building materials, we go, believe it or not, we've, we've figured out a way to put our material into ceramic glaze. So that today you can buy uh, tile from Dow Tile that has microband antimicrobial built right into the glazed surface of the tile. And that effect is working. We can test it in our labs and show that that surface is antimicrobial in your home, on the walls, in the bathroom, on the floor, in the shower, et cetera. So that's a, that's a very unique building material that, we're, that we put our materials into. And that was a, a huge R&D project for us. Um, that I think we're, you know, we're just now starting to see the fruits of. Uh, other building materials include flooring, so any kind of wood flooring. We can be in the wood-coated surfaces. We can be in laminates. We can be in, in uh, vinyl flooring on those surfaces. Uh, we can be in paints, so we have paint partnerships both here in the U.S. and abroad in uh, Asia, and we're working on a couple in Europe as well. So uh, we're actually in quite a few building materials. It's been a big business for us. I think one of the most common ones that we would run into is uh, would be paints and um, uh, coatings that would use 
be used um, as part of mold remediation, uh, some types of uh, coatings that might be used to prevent mold growth and things like that. Sure. Yeah, you know, the, other, the other surface that we're in, a lot of is countertops. Uh, so, you know, Microban has a longstanding partnership with uh, our friends Cosentino. Uh, they make silestone countertops, and those countertops are a combination of coarse and resin. And uh, the Microban is, is, is part of the actual manufacturing process when the resin and the uh, quartz are, are combined on, with pressure and heat. Um, you know, the microband is then kind of dispersed equally throughout the matrix. And so anytime you buy a silestone countertop, uh, it comes with microband built in, and it's protecting that surface. Cool. Well, Scott, do me a favor. Hang on. We're going to go into what we call a roundup, and Joe sure. and I are going to come back and each ask you a question, and then we're going to give you the last word. Sounds good. Okay. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up. Move him on, move him on, hit him up. Raw hide. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw. Okay, Joe. Eric, uh, Scott, I, you know, we, we don't get too many opportunities to have people in your type of position with a big company like you're with and in a very senior position doing marketing, business development type work. And I just wanted to ask you if maybe you could give our listeners who, you know, most of them run small, medium, maybe somewhat, you know, bigger than medium size companies that do indoor environmental quality consulting and remediation type work. From your experience in business development, can you give our listeners a tip as to what, you know, one of the key things they should be trying to do when they sell their services? Yeah, I mean, uh, I've been in sales and business development my entire career. And, um, you know, started out when I was pretty young, right out of college. And made, I think, probably the same mistakes that most salespeople or business development people make. And, and that is the, the mistake of talking. Um, we, we like to talk a lot and sell. And I think the most important thing in any selling relationship or business development relationship is listening. Um, when you hear what the customer is looking for and you can provide that service that they're looking for, and typically, you know, if you know how to move the conversation and you know the right questions to ask to get them talking, that will be the best way to get somebody interested in your product. People love to talk about themselves and what their problems are. And if you can have them, you know, take you to the place where they're asking you for the service that you're providing, that makes it a lot easier to sell it to them. And uh, I've learned over a period of years that, you know, I can, I can vomit all over a customer which is what we kind of laugh about when we're in the office, you know, uh, hey, we can give them the whole microband spiel. It's a 50-page deck, and we're going to give them every single bit of information they ever want to know about microband, and we can walk out of that thing and not know at all what the customer actually wants or what they're trying to achieve. So from my perspective, you know, if my guys come back to us and they can tell me, hey, these guys are trying to build their business by doing X, Y, and Z, then we're able to say, okay, let's use microband to help them do that by doing this. Uh, and of course, it has to fit within our business model and what we're capable of doing. But 
I think when, you, when you're transparent with people, when you're honest with people about what it is you're trying to do with them and help them with, uh, and you let them tell you where to go, uh, there's no better way to win their business. Great advice. Thank you. Sure. Yeah, that was a great answer. Scott, if you looked in the crystal ball, you know, what do you see in the future for Microban? You know, I actually see many wonderful things. I think we finally learned at Microban how to do this thing right. Uh, we, we had some fits and starts, I would say, in terms of our business model and how we should offer our products and our brand up to our partners. And, of course, the partners are the most important thing when you get started is figuring out how you can help their business. And I think just going back to my earlier point, you know, we were busy worrying about what was good for microband and less worried about what was good for our customers. And when we flipped that switch, when we really started to say, how can we help you be successful is when we became successful. And so I think going forward, you know, we have a great brand that we're building and continue to build. And that brand is probably the most important part of what we offer. It is the, the center of everything we do. Uh, because brands are that important, and we protect it like a jewel, and we leverage it like a jewel, uh, and, and we find new customers based on our prior successes, and we show them how they can be successful, too, in their business. Uh, and that's the most important thing. So for us, I think it's finding new categories that we can enter into. I think it's about finding new territories where we can bring the brand and grow it. I think it's about finding um, new technologies uh, or new ways to utilize our technologies in categories maybe that we haven't thought of before, kind of like ceramic tiles, uh, to add an antimicrobial benefit because it is a benefit that resonates with people no matter what category you're in. You know, people like to know that their products are cleaner, uh, that they are inhibited from the growth of bacteria, mold, and mildew. It's a story that's out there. It's not a fad. It's going to continue to be out there for as long as you and I are around. So it's just a question of, you know, finding that right product group and the right technology to help meet the needs of that of that partner. Great. Scott, um, we always, is there a question that we should have asked? You know, we always like to give our guests, you know, the closing comment. So uh, is there anything that we missed or anything that you'd like to add? No, I think you guys actually asked a lot of really great questions. And, uh, you know, I, I, think, I think the question that I always think is, is the most interesting is, you know, how do you get your business to grow uh, in a way that is meaningful for you and for your customers? And I think you, you guys kind of led me in that right direction, which is to talk about offering up a great product, offering up a great service, um, and making sure that the customer is kind of the focus and not, and not the benefit to the company. The benefit to the company will come when you're making the customer happy. So, you know, I think you guys actually asked all the right questions, and, and I was glad to be a part of it today. Okay, well, thank you. Well, before thank I go, you. go ahead, Joe. I just wanted to say thank you. It was a, a very interesting and uh, enjoyable interview. Really appreciate you doing My pleasure. Anytime, guys. Okay, well, thanks, Scott. Before we go, I'd like to thank today's guest, Scott Rosenzweig with Microband International, my co-host, Radio Joe Hughes, uh, Austin Stone Cold Novak, and most importantly, you, our growing group of loyal listeners. If you like the show, please tell your friends. And please be sure to come back and join us next Friday at noon for a monumental occasion, our 200th episode of IAQ Radio.
Buddy, you're a young man, dumb man, careless, and you're gonna make someone quite sick someday. You got spores on your plate, they'll incubate. There's trouble if you cross-contaminate. Microbes, they might kill you. Microbes, they might kill you. This has been another IAQ Radio production.